We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. We welcome everyone to Bible class, and especially those joining us from the KFUO listening audience. And we are going to consider the lessons for next Sunday. And for a change of pace, we have also included the psalm appointed for next Sunday, uh, as well as the three readings. So, uh, Psalm 54 is the appointed psalm, and we will take a look at that. Um, O God, save me by your name, and vindicate me by your might. Those are called parallel phrases in Hebrew poetry because the name of God is God. You know, when we talk about the second commandment, we talk about not taking the name of the Lord your God in vain, and that is because his name is him, just like your name is you. When somebody says something derogatory about you and uses your name, they might as well say about it, you personally. It's the same thing. So here the parallel, O oh God, save me by your name, is equivalent to and vindicate me by your might. In Hebrew poetry, many times there are parallels one sentence or one phrase says it one way, and the other sentence or phrase says it in another way, both reflecting the same thought. So these are parallels. Now what we see here in Psalm 54 is that this is a prayer for deliverance. A prayer for deliverance. If you looked in the Bible, you would see that there's a superscription above this psalm that talks about what was happening at that time. Some of the psalms have those, some of them don't. And what is said there is that there was a problem with what is called, what were the people called the Zephites. Okay? The Zephites. The Zephites were actually descendants from Caleb, but they were far in the south and they were considered outside of Israel. In other words, they were not considered part of the 12 tribes. And because they were outside, they did not hold to the faith of Israel in the one true God. It was these people that were attacking David and the people of God. Oh God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. Another prayer, another parallel, saying the same thing, but in a different way. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. In other words, God means nothing to them. And therefore, they are enemies, and they are causing problems 
Do we have that today? You know, most of us are still old enough or getting old enough to remember the days where the Christian faith was honored in this country. And now it is suspect by those that do not believe. In fact, many call it a threat. Many have said, even at the level of national government, if you're a Christian, you're not qualified to serve because of what you believe. So what was going on with David is nothing new. It is going on in our own nation. We have people that are indeed opposed to what we believe and teach. They don't want what we believe and teach to become prevalent in our society because it would stop them from doing what they're doing, from the mindset that they have, from the culture that we have. So, this was long time ago, Psalm 54. Nothing has changed. As Solomon would say, there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. It's still happening. So, those that do not set God before themselves are all around us likewise. Behold, now this is a statement of faith. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. This is a confession of faith on the part of the psalmist. In spite of what is happening, I am helped by God. He is the upholder of my life. And as we live in our culture, and we are opposed by enemies, he is our helper and upholder of life. He is the one that is faithful to us. He's the one that's faithful to us in the midst of our enemies. He was to his own son, Jesus Christ. And he is to us as his people also. Because he's going to see to it that in spite of opposition out there, the church continues until he comes again. It's his promise. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Faithfulness can also be translated righteousness. In your righteousness, do the right thing. Bring an end to this, which he will, but not until the end times. 
He may at times here and there in this world to protect his church, but it will all come to an end when he comes again. With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. In other words, this is gratitude. This is explaining much about our worship because God comes to us and then we bring offerings and thanks to him. That is our response, okay? That is our response. For he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. The psalmist is confessing God has never let him down. God has never let him down. He's not going to let you down either. He's not going to do it. He never lets his people down. He may not do it the exact right way that you think, but he'll do it in his way and that will be best for you. So, that's the psalm appointed for the day. And it is a prayer, as I said, for deliverance. Okay? All right. Questions, comments about that? It's very relevant for our lives today. Written so long ago, but very relevant. All right, Jeremiah 11. Um, this passage plucked out of Jeremiah 11, we need to talk about some context. Jeremiah was a prophet and we're told he was from the town of Anathoth. And that was his hometown. Those were his people. What is happening in this passage is that the people of Anathoth have turned on Jeremiah. They are now opposed to him. In fact, it goes so far to say there is a plot against him. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet who really went after the people because Jeremiah was in those years before Babylon overthrew Judah. In fact, Jeremiah probably ended his life in Egypt. That's where he died, because he fled. Jeremiah told the people what they wanted, they did not want to hear. Okay? They did not want to hear. Everybody has things they don't want to hear. I have preached and told you what you didn't want to hear. 
and I don't care. Because that's what God wants me to do. And somebody, sometimes, somebody's got to say it. There's the elephant in the room. Jeremiah did that over and over and over again. The people considered him a traitor because he spoke against the nation. More importantly, he spoke against the temple. And they would not tolerate that. During the days of Jeremiah, he would speak of problems, of idolatry, and of God overthrowing this nation and its place of worship, and that they would be carried off into exile. There were also false prophets in that day. It's talked about a lot in about chapters 25, 26, 27, that foretold nothing but good things. That the people were going to be blessed. That the nation was going to be blessed. So you had all these prophets. That's what the people wanted to hear. But at the same time, Jeremiah was speaking a word of doom and gloom. And they didn't want to hear it. And you know what? The same's true today. There are lots of preachers out there, lots of TV preachers, that talk about nothing but good and tell you how to lead your lives, are always optimistic, you're God's kids and it's always going to be great for you. There is no law preaching. It's all fun and games. It's all feel good. I can preach like that. I can make you feel good all the days of your life and then you get to go to hell. Because you don't know you're sinners. You don't know you need forgiveness. You don't know you've done anything wrong. So I, I'll make you happy. But there's more to God's word than that. There's more to God's word, and that's what Jeremiah was telling the people. And they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. So that's the context of these three short verses. The Lord made it known to me, and I knew, then you showed me their deeds. He did not know there was a plot against him until God showed him. 
But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. All right? I was happy, thought the people of my hometown loved me, liked me, liked to hear from me. I was like a lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes, okay? They had a plot to do away with Jeremiah because they didn't want what he said. Now, who are they really rejecting? God. They might not have anything personally against Jeremiah, but they don't like what he says. So they are against God and the message that God has put in Jeremiah's mouth. That's who they're really opposed to. Saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. In other words, let us destroy Jeremiah and what he's saying. Let us cut him off from the land of the living. Kill him. That his name be remembered no more. So we not only want to get rid of him and his message, we want to get rid of any remembrance of him and what he told us. We don't want to hear it to that degree, that bad. Let's just get rid of him. Now Jeremiah speaks. But O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the hearts and the minds, okay? Let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. All right, when God called Jeremiah, he told him it was going to be rough. Told him. So now, Jeremiah's in this position with these schemes against him, and he's being told this plot is against him, they're trying to silence him, even kill him, so where does he flee? Back to the God that called him in the first place. Back to the Lord to hear what, to, to trust in his power and his vengeance upon those that don't want to hear Jeremiah. Okay? Now, there is certainly some parallel between this and the psalm. Jeremiah could have prayed Psalm 54 because it was the same. It was the same situation. So Jeremiah entrusts his cause to God. That's what we have to do as people of God in this world. With the message we believe, we have to entrust ourselves to God. He's the only one that's going to make a difference. The only one. 
we put our trust in him. So it's very close to the psalm. All right, questions about this passage? Yeah, Jim. So how do you know they, they outcast him, basically? He right. And so on. How does that ultimately turn around for his story to be in the Bible when they go back and say yeah. everything said be true? Yeah, so Jeremiah, what happened to Jeremiah? Well, God did deliver him. And he kept delivering him. Jeremiah led a rough life. He was imprisoned on more than one occasion for what he said. The king, they would bring a message to the king. This guy's out there saying all this about our nation, that it's over, the temple, it's over. If we don't repent, while the other prophets are saying, we're fine, we're going to be fine. And the king would throw him in prison. Now, he lived out his days. God spared his life. And he kept speaking, even though the people didn't want to hear it. So God made sure his ministry happened in spite of the people. You got to remember, you and God are a majority. When you're doing God's will, speaking God's word, you and God are a majority, no matter how many people are against you. So his ministry continued. This is only chapter 11, it's 50 chapters long. Yeah. So God saw to it that this plan was thwarted and that Jeremiah could keep saying the words that he was saying to the people of Israel, the people of Judah. Other questions? Yes. Um, the comment is that uh, there's a real problem here today with a lot of people in a lot of churches that don't preach the law. And they don't want to hear it, and they don't do confession and absolution, etc. And that is true. That is true. Um, the basis of the Lutheran Church is law and gospel. If you don't know you're sinful and need a savior, why do you need the gospel? Why do you need to be in church in the first place if you're doing just fine and God's going to bless you? Why do you come? The other problem with that is there's this concept that if you're one of God's children, He's going to bless you and only good things are going to happen to you. What happens when something bad happens? It is a faith crisis for that person because it's not supposed to happen. Therefore, God must not 
bless me, God must not love me. So it's a crisis. Law and gospel is the proper perspective on God's word. It's the only way to see how God works in our midst. And he has to show us we are sinful so that we know we need the Savior he sent. Otherwise, it's just pastor feel good. And as I say, you may feel good for a while, but then reality comes. So it's very dangerous. When you start leaving out all preaching of the law and all confession and absolution, when you simply omit these things, you are omitting a portion of the Word of God. You are omitting a portion of what God has told us about Himself. And we are called on to preach the whole counsel of God. Not just the bits and pieces we like, but all of them. Any other comments? All right, let's look at the uh, epistle lesson. Who is wise and understanding among you? It's James 3, 13 to 4, 10. Uh, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. Okay, how are we going to find meekness? It's lowliness of heart toward God. In other, in other words, you realize you deserve nothing from God and you come to him with a lowly heart knowing that he will bless you by his grace. That's being meek toward God. Meekness of wisdom. In other words, how does this play out with other people? It means that we are gentle and mild with others. Okay? That comes from hearts touched by the gospel. Hearts touched by the gospel. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not, be bo do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, what he's saying is this. This meekness of wisdom, this meekness towards God, this humble spirit towards God that comes knowing you receive, you deserve nothing but receiving the gifts of God plays out to other people as you are meek and gentle with them. If, however, 
what proceeds from your heart is jealousy and selfish ambition, those are just the opposite of what God works. They don't come from above. They don't come from God, but is earthly, unspiritual, that means worldly, and demonic. You see, we often talk about this and people don't realize or, or don't focus on this. There are the things of God and there are the things of Satan and there is no in-between. There's no gray. That's what this is saying. There is the meekness of wisdom worked by God in the hearts of his people that reflects that to other people. And there is that which Satan works, and he calls it demonic. Calls it demonic. So those are the two sides. Now we're not talking about justification, that he forgives us by faith. We're talking about the fruits of what happens after you believe in Jesus Christ. Afterwards. And it's one of these two. And there are obviously some difficult situations going on in the midst of the people James is writing to. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Okay? That's the result. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Right? That's what godly sanctification works. Okay? In other words, um, Selfish ambition, when selfish ambition uh, exists in the church, there's problems. Okay? There's serious problems. Disorder and every vile practice. Now the wisdom, he talks about the peaceable, that is the gospel of peace. No uh, strife. Okay. No strife, um, and uh, full of mercy and good fruits means that you show mercy and good to those in distress. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So in other words, their works bring forth righteousness. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, we're talking about here that, uh, that fight that goes on within each of us of spiritual warfare between the new person that God has worked in us and the old sinful nature that tries to rear its ugly head again. 
And that's a constant battle. It's talked about in Romans 7 at length. The good that I would that I, I do not, the good that I do not want, that is what I do. That's what he's talking about. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's right. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, we're not talking about literal murder here. We're talking about murder in the sense, the way John talks about it in his first letter which is, he who hates his brother is a murderer. Okay? So it's not just the physical act of murder, it's hatred towards others. It's coveting, wanting what others have, but when you can't get them, you quarrel and fight. I don't know who he was writing to, but it must have been a lot of fun. This must have been a pretty wild congregation. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Many times the, that verse is quoted, you do not have because you do not ask, to remind us to pray. Here in the context, it's specifically, you don't ask, you don't receive, and when you ask, you ask in the wrong way out of selfish ambition and jealousy, so you don't get it, okay? So it is impugning their motives in prayer itself. You adulterous people. Now this goes back to the Old Testament. This does not mean they were committing physical adultery. Might have happened, but that's not the emphasis here. Adulterous means in their spiritual relationship with God. You are called an adulterer if you don't worship the one true God and Him alone. They are letting the passions of this world become their God. Therefore, they are adulterous. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Okay. Can't have it both ways. You cannot have it both ways. Does not work. You cannot be a person of the world and a person of God. Being a person of God should manifest itself in your whole life, not just in bits and pieces. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, what in the world does that mean? To no purpose that the scripture says he, that's God, yearns jealously, jealously, over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Spirit should be capitalized, folks. 
God wants his Holy Spirit. He yearns for, he is jealous to make the Spirit available to us so that we stay his friends, so that we are not at enmity with him, so that we are not opposed to him, so that the Holy Spirit will work in us so we remain faithful to him. That is what God wants. But he gives more grace, that is. He gives more of the blessings earned for us by Jesus Christ. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Okay. Now, from verse 7 on, he is going to describe what it means to be repentant. That is not only sorrow for your sins, but a desire to turn away from them. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. That is through faith in God, repenting of your sins, and believing in Christ, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded is to have your mind set on God and on the world. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So as I said, these last verses call us to repent of our sin, to be sorry for our sin, to seek God and his forgiveness according to his promises. So it is a stern call to repentance. All right. Thoughts on that one? Thoughts on that one? All right, we'll continue. Mark chapter 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, we'll deal with that in a minute. Okay. Uh, Pastor Thomas preached this morning from Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50 tells us that Jesus sent, set his face like a flint. Uh, that's the prophecy. And he did that. Uh, that verse is referred to in Luke. And it's when Jesus finally says, makes up his mind, he's going to Jerusalem for the last time. It's going to Jerusalem for the reason of saving us. And he will not be turned or dissuaded. Sets his face like a flint, determined to go to Jerusalem. He didn't want anyone to know because he didn't want anybody to slow him down. Okay? He's off to Jerusalem. 
For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Okay. He said this three times. Okay. Notice where it says the Son of Man is going. Actually, the best way to translate it is the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. Why is that the best? Because it means and it says... It's done. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. He is. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Now, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. All right. There's some thought the disciples certainly understood he was going to go away or die. Which leads to the next section. The reason they didn't totally understand was, as usual, they weren't paying attention. What was the bigger discussion? Who's going to be in charge when he's gone? Who's going to be in charge when Jesus is gone? Who's the greatest? So they'd heard him say this before. Okay, if he goes, if he dies, who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be in charge? That's what's going on. Who's going to be in charge when Pastor Smith's gone? I don't care. All right, now. So, that's why, of course, they fully didn't understand because they could not understand the concept that Jesus Christ was going to rise from the dead. Even though Jesus had raised people from death right in front of them, they did not grasp that he himself was going to rise from the dead. So now, and they came to Capernaum, and we went, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, anytime Jesus asks a question, he's going to give them a new teaching. You can see it happen in the Gospels. When Jesus asks them a question, he's going to give them a new teaching. What were you discussing on the way? Did he know? Yes. But they kept silent. Nobody wanted to fess up what they were really discussing on the way. Who's going to be in charge when you're gone? Who's the greatest? So Jesus uses this opportunity to teach. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest, who would be in charge. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, 
He must be last of all and servant of all. Now, that was ultimately illustrated. It hasn't happened yet. It's described for us in the Gospel of John when Jesus washed their feet. He became their servant. And he said, love as I have loved you. And John also says in, in his first letter, we love because he first loved us. So, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That's why Jesus said the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, he took a child and put the child in their midst. A child, a small child, has absolutely no aspirations of greatness. No aspirations of greatness. That's not the way their mind thinks. To be better than everybody else. The disciples are going to be the representatives of Jesus. And they should be like children from the sense that when the twelve go out into the world, they are not to be seeking greatness. They are not to be seeking to be greater than those they're teaching. They're not supposed to be saying, I'm a disciple, I'm better than you are. I know more than you do. There to be like a child, seeking no greatness, but proclaiming the word of God to people who, just like them, need the love of Christ. So there's to be no pride, no who's in charge talk. They are supposed to be representatives of Jesus, humble, meek servants to the world to bring out the message of Jesus Christ. So he uses a child. Now notice what he says. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me, Father in heaven. Father in heaven. Jesus came to show us God. 
He came to show us God. To reveal God to us. All we had was the word. To reveal God to us in the flesh. And so did he come as a mighty ruler with all power, glowed in the dark, all kinds of stuff. No. He came because he wanted to show us God. And the God he showed us was the God of love was the God who was going to change the ugliness of this world by bringing forgiveness, healing the sick, getting rid of the demonic, and putting an end to death. And so that's how he revealed God to the world. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father that sent me. He was revealing the gospel, the side of God that we can't see in the law. We can't see in the threats. But there was another side of God, and that's how God chose to reveal himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Just as we talked about in the wisdom of meekness, Christ had it all. Proper motivations of the heart, Christ had it all. And so, just as Jeremiah was mistreated, so Jesus Christ would be mistreated. The prayer of Psalm 54 could be the prayer of Jesus Christ as he walked this earth. It all ties together if you start thinking about it. So, Jesus teaches them how to be his representatives when they finally go out into the world. Into the world. And it's not to be arguing about Who's in charge? All right, questions, comments about that one? Yeah, Don? Well, uh, we're told that when we talk to an unbeliever, we should start with gospel. Not necessarily. But don't bring out the big guns. Certainly, we have to remind them they are sinful people and need a Savior. That does come first. And the gospel. But you are right. When a person is recalcitrant and rejects the gospel over and over again, the only thing you can say is law. The only thing you can say ultimately is that you are a sinful person 
and that there is no forgiveness except through faith in Jesus Christ. You always want to add that. There's no time when it's only law. But there is no hope without faith in Jesus Christ. So it, it does come back. There always has to be law and gospel. But certainly, uh, after a lot of attempts to reach a person's heart, you've got, to, you've got to double up on the law. You've got to double up on the law. Okay. All right, anything else? All right, let's close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.